So my aim in this talk is to present what I take to be the most important argument for the thesis that the mind is not material. In order to set the stage for the argument, it will be useful first to say a little bit about what I mean by mind and what I mean by material. Contemporary analytic philosophers commonly distinguish between three aspects of the mind, which might appear to be inexplicable in materialist terms. Needless to say, not all philosophers think that any of these features really is, at the end of the day, inexplicable in materialist terms. The point is just that it is widely thought that if any mental phenomenon poses a problem for materialism, it will be one or more of these three. The three aspects uh, are rationality, consciousness, and intentionality. So let me briefly characterize each of them. Rationality is our capacity to perform abstract concepts, to put them together into complete thoughts or propositions, and to reason logically from one proposition to another. For example, we are not only able to perceive this or that particular man, but also to grasp the general idea or universal concept man, which applies to every man that does exist, has existed, will exist, or could exist. We can take this concept and combine it with others to form complete thoughts, like the proposition that all men are mortal. And we can infer from propositions like all men are mortal and Socrates is a man to the conclusion that Socrates is mortal. Rationality in this sense is, among animals, unique to human beings. By the way, there is a handout I assume everybody's got hold of. Might uh, help to, to sort of follow along the talk here. Now, consciousness is the awareness of one's external environment and internal goings-on that we and other animals have, and plants and non-living things do not. In contemporary analytic philosophy, consciousness is taken to be puzzling insofar as it is associated with qualia, the qualitative features of experience which, unlike ordinary material features, are directly accessible only from the first-person point of view of the subject of experience. For example, consider what happens when you slam a door on your hand. There's damage to the body, behavior such as letting out a yelp and wincing, and neural activity. All of this might, in principle, be observed by anyone. But there's also a feel to the experience, the quality of the pain, which is directly knowable only to you from within the experience, as it were. The third puzzling aspect of the mind discussed by contemporary philosophers is intentionality, which is the directedness toward an object that is exhibited by at least some mental states. For example, when you think about the Eiffel Tower, your thought is directed toward, points at, or is about that particular object. The intentionality of thoughts is the main example of intentionality discussed by contemporary philosophers. But conscious experiences of the kind that even a non-human animal might have seem to exhibit intentionality too. For example, when you and a dog both see a cat, the dog's perceptual experience, no less than yours, is directed toward, points at, or is about the cat. This is true even though the dog does not conceptualize the cat the way that you do, given your rationality. Even plants might be claimed to exhibit intentionality of a very rudimentary sort. For example, a plant will grow toward the light uh, of the sun, even though being non-rational, it does not conceptualize the sun the way that you do. And being non-sentient, it is not conscious of the sun in the way that a non-human animal can be. Thinkers like Plato, Aristotle, Aquinas, and Descartes took rationality, which is distinctive of human beings, to be the key to the immateriality of the mind. As will be obvious from the argument that I'm going to defend in this talk, I think they were exactly right about that. However, contemporary philosophers tend to focus instead on consciousness and intentionality as posing the most obvious challenge to materialism. And some of them even seem to think that rationality is relatively easy for a materialist to account for. The reason they think rationality is relatively easy to account for is that they suppose that the currently popular thesis that the brain is a kind of computer and the mind is the software that runs on the computer essentially solves the problem of assim assimilating rationality to matter. In my view, that supposition is not only false, but so deeply fallacious and incoherent that it is a wonder that anyone takes it seriously. I like to make modest claims in my talk. <laughs> but explaining why I say that requires some stage setting. So I'll come back to the topic of minds and computers later on. The reason contemporary philosophers think that consciousness and intentionality are much harder to account for has to do with a battery of arguments that have become well-known even outside of philosophy. 
For example, there is Frank Jackson's knowledge argument, which holds that you could know everything that possibly could be known about the physics and physiology of color perception and still not know from that alone what it is like to see a color that you've never seen before. Then there is David Chalmers' zombie argument, which holds that there could, in theory, be a creature which is particle for par a particle-for-particle particle duplicate of a human being and yet is totally devoid of consciousness. Such arguments are meant to show that facts about qualia are facts over and above the physical facts. What is called the Swamp Man thought experiment asks us to imagine a creature that is a particle-for-particle particle duplicate of a human being, but is devoid of any intentionality. The possibility, at least in principle, of such a creature is taken to show that facts about intentionality are facts over and above the physical facts. Now, I'm not going to say anything further about these particular arguments, because in my opinion, they're not, they're not of direct relevance to the aim of establishing the immateriality of the mind. But it's not because I think that they don't have any force against materialism. On the contrary, I think they are decisive refutations of materialism. The reason, though, has nothing to do with the nature of the mind. It has instead to do with the materialist conception of matter. Materialism has inherited from Galileo, Descartes, Locke, and other early modern thinkers a highly, mathematic, a highly mathematicized conception of the material world, according to which matter possesses only quantifiable primary qualities, like spatial location, motion, size, and the like, and is devoid of anything corresponding to so-called secondary qualities, like color, odor, sound, taste, heat, and cold, at least as common sense understands these qualities. On this view, if we want to redefine a quality, like being red, for example, in terms of an object's tendency to absorb certain wavelengths of light and to reflect others, then we can say that an apple is red. But if by red we mean what common sense understands by red, namely the way that red looks to a normal observer but would not look to someone who is colorblind, then there is nothing in the apple itself that corresponds to that. And the same goes for other colors and for flavors, smells, sounds, and the like. Irreducibly qualitative features were taken by the early modern philosophers and scientists to exist only as the qualia of conscious experience, part of the veil of perceptions through which we are aware of the material world, but not part of the material world itself. Now, if you are going to define matter that way, then you have already implicitly committed yourself to a kind of dualism, whether you realize it or not. For if you say that color, odor, sound, taste, smell, etc., again, at least as common sense understands these features, do not exist in matter, <clears throat> then that entails that they do not exist in the brain, since the brain is no less material than the objects outside of it. But if you also go on to say that these qualities do exist in the mind, in our conscious awareness of matter, then you are saying that the mind is not material. In this way, dualism of a broadly Cartesian sort is by no means some rearguard resistance to the modern scientific mode of explanation, but on the contrary, follows from it. Indeed, early modern thinkers like Malebranche and Ralph Cudworth emphasize this. Oddly, contemporary philosophers and scientists alike seem mostly blind to the fact that Cartesian dualism is rooted in the modern scientific conception of matter, though Schrodinger was one scientist who saw the connection, and Thomas Nagel is one philosopher who sees it. Now, what is true of qualia is also true of intentionality. For another key aspect of the mathematicized conception of matter is that it leaves out anything smacking of Aristotle's notion of final cause or teleology. Now, teleology essentially involves a things being directed, uh, directed to or pointed towards some end. For example, an acorn might be said to be directed toward the end of becoming an oak, or the eye might be said to be directed toward the end of enabling an organism to see. To say that matter is devoid of teleology is therefore to say that there is no such directedness built into it. But intentionality is a species of directedness. Hence, if there is no teleology inherent in matter, then there is no intentionality inherent in matter either. But intentionality does exist in the mind, in particular in our thoughts, since a thought is always directed toward a certain object or subject matter, and in our choices, which are directed toward the realization of certain goals. Hence, to affirm that there is intentionality in the mind while endorsing a mathematicized conception of matter is implicitly to commit yourself to a kind of dualism. Insofar as modern materialism is committed to a mathematicized conception of matter, then it contains within itself the seeds of its own destruction. 
To point this out, however, is not necessarily to establish thereby the, immateri the immateriality of the mind, because rather than drawing the conclusion that qualia and intentionality are immaterial, one could instead simply reject the mathematicized conception of matter. Note that this would not require one to hold that the mathematicized conception of matter is false, a claim which would, of course, be a tough sell given the great utility that this conception has had in modern science. Rather, one could hold that the mathematicized conception of matter is incomplete, that it captures part of the nature of the material world, but not all of it. This is the view taken by uh, what's called epistemic structural realism, according to which physics captures the abstract mathematical structure of matter, but not its intrinsic nature. Bertrand Russell took this position, and in recent years, interest in the view has been revived by philosophers of science like John Worrell and philosophers of mind like David Chalmers and Galen Strawson. If one adopts this structural realist view, one could then go in any of several further directions in dealing with qualia and intentionality. For example, some have gone in an idealist or panpsychist direction and argue that qualia are the intrinsic properties of all matter, of which physics gives us only the structure. This is essentially to reduce matter to mind rather than mind to matter. Or one could go instead in a neo-Aristotelian direction, holding that teleology is a real feature of the material world and that color and other so-called secondary qualities exist in matter more or less in just the common sense, the way the common sense supposes that they do. In that case, consciousness and intentionality would turn out to be material after all, because there is more to matter than the mathematicized conception of matter countenances. I won't pursue these issues any further in this talk because, as I've said, I think that rationality, rather than either consciousness or intentionality, is the key to understanding why the mind is immaterial. And the arguments for the immaterial nature of rationality go through whether one endorses a mathematicized conception of matter or an Aristotelian conception or some other conception. For present purposes, then, we can simply bracket off this dispute about the nature of matter. Okay, so the specific argument for the immateriality of our rational faculties that I want to present here is one that has its roots in Plato and Aristotle, but was given especially trenchant expression by the late Catholic philosopher James Ross in his 1992 Journal of Philosophy article, Immaterial Aspects of Thought, and his 2008 book, Thought and World. I've defended and elaborated on Ross's argument myself in several publications, but I will confine myself here to setting out the, the main thrust of the argument and responding to some of the, the main objections. The basic idea of the argument is very simple and can be stated in the form of a syllogism. <clears throat> the real work comes in defending the premises of the syllogism. The syllogism itself uh, goes as follows. <clears throat> Excuse me. Step one. Formal thought processes can have an exact or an unambiguous conceptual content. Step two, nothing material can have an exact or unambiguous conceptual content. And therefore, three, formal thought processes are not material. Now, this syllogism is valid. That is to say, if we accept the premises, then we must accept the conclusion. So why should we accept the premises? Let's begin with the second premise with a very elementary and intuitive example to set the stage for the more technical and abstract sorts of examples to which Ross appeals. Consider a simple pictorial representation, such as a drawing of a triangle, the sort of drawing you might make in ink, something like that. That's about the extent of my uh, visual aids for this talk, by the way. So <laughs> some of the other speakers, I think, will be a little more, a little more impressive. Okay, so consider a simple pictorial representation such as a drawing of a triangle, like the one I've done there in black ink. <clears throat> now, what is the content of this representation? Does it represent triangularity in the abstract, or only black triangles specifically, or maybe only black isosceles triangles specifically? Does it represent something else instead, such as a pyramid, or a dunce cap, or a slice of pizza? There's nothing in the physical properties of the representation that can tell us. Studying the size of the image, the thickness of its lines, the chemistry of the ink in which it is drawn or the like will not provide an answer to this question. <clears throat> For whatever the list of the image's physical properties turns out to contain, they will all be compatible with various alternative possible attributions of conceptual content to the picture. 
Now notice that the situation does not change even if we add something to the picture, such as the word triangle written under the image. For one thing, that that particular sequence of shapes or sounds counts as a word in the first place, let alone a word with the specific meaning that the word triangle has, has nothing to do with its physical properties. It is entirely a matter of convention. For another thing, even given the customary meaning of the word, there are still alternative possible interpretations of this revised image with the word written under it. For example, it could represent triangles themselves, or it could represent instead the English word triangle, or it could even represent the obscure 1970s Japanese pop band triangle. There really was such a thing, as I learned from Wikipedia, preparing my talk. Again, nothing in the physical properties of the word and image can suffice to tell us precisely what conceptual content they convey. This will be true no matter what further, deta further details we add to the image. There will always be alternative possible interpretations. The physical properties of any material representation are indeterminate or ambiguous with respect to its content. Whatever conceptual content it turns out to have will have to be determined by something outside of these properties. Now, Ross deployed an example borrowed from the contemporary philosopher Saul Kripke to drive the point home. <clears throat> so suppose you never computed any numbers as large as 57, but are asked to compute 68 plus 57. You answer 125, confident not only that this is the arithmetically correct answer, but also that it accords with the way you've always used the word plus, namely to denote the addition function which, when applied to numbers, uh, the numbers 68 and 57, yields 125. <clears throat> but now, Kripke says, imagine that a bizarre skeptic asks you how you can be sure that this is really what you meant by the word plus in the past, and therefore how you can be sure that 125 really is the right answer. Perhaps, our skeptic suggests, what you really meant in the past by plus, the word plus, and by the symbol plus, by the, the adding symbol, the plus sign, was not addition, but rather what Kripke calls the quus function, which can be defined as follows. x quus y equals the same as x plus y, if x and y are less than 57, and it equals five otherwise. In that case, what you would always have been carrying out was really quaddition rather than addition, since quadding and adding numbers will always yield the same result when the numbers are smaller than 57. That would entail that now that you are computing 68 plus 57, the correct answer would be 5 rather than 125. And perhaps the skeptic proposes you think otherwise because you are now mis misinterpreting all of your previous usages of the word plus and of the plus sign. This all seems absurd, of course, but how can you know the skeptic is wrong? Now, Kripke has his own uses for this example. This is in his book, Wittgenstein on, on, uh, um, on private language, on rules in private language. Um, but what Ross emphasizes is that nothing in the facts about your behavior or your neurophysiology or any other physical aspect of human nature can determine that what you were really doing was addition rather than quaddition. For example, it is no use appealing to the fact that what you always have said in the past is two plus two equals four, rather than saying two plus two equals four. Because what is at issue is what you meant by the word plus. The skeptic will say that it may be that every time you said the word plus, what you really meant was the quaddition function. Nor will it help even to call to mind memories of your having had visual or auditory mental images of the sentence two plus two equals four, rather than the sentence two plus two equals four, because what is in question is the meaning that you attached to these imagined sounds and shapes. Even if you were to insist that whatever you meant in the past, what you mean now by plus is addition rather than quaddition, the skeptic will still ask how you know that. And Ross and Kripke would point out that to answer the question it will not suffice to point out that you hear and now utter sentences like two plus two equals four rather than sentences like two plus two equals four or that you here and now bring mental images of the first sentence to mind rather than the second, because the question is what meaning you attach here and now to those sounds and shapes. Nor will it help to appeal to what is going on in your nervous system, because in order to know that such and such neural activity is associated with addition rather than quaddition, we first have to know that you really are, at any particular moment, 
carrying out addition rather than quaddition, so that we can establish a correlation between addition and the neural activity in question. In other words, any neurophysiological criterion that we could appeal to would have to presuppose that we already know that you are adding rather than quadding, and thus couldn't by itself establish that you are. Now notice that it is completely irrelevant that most of us have in fact computed numbers larger than 57. Because for any person, there's always some number, even if a very large one, higher than which he has never computed. And Kripke's imagined skeptic can always run his argument using that number instead of 57. Notice also that there's nothing special about the word plus. An example parallel to Kripke's could be constructed for any term in any language. So that the lesson that Ross draws is that there's nothing in the material facts about human nature that can suffice to determine the meaning or conceptual content of any sentence or of any other material representation. Again, the physical properties of any material representation are by themselves ambiguous with respect to their conceptual content. Contemporary analytic philosophers refer to this phenomenon as the indeterminacy of meaning. Okay, so that gives us premise two of our syllogism. Now, a materialist might conclude from this that none of the sentences we utter, and indeed none of the thoughts that we have, has any exact, unambiguous, or determinate conceptual content. Indeed, philosophers like W.V. Quine and Daniel Dennett have concluded just that from arguments like the one just given. For if you hold, as materialism does, that the physical facts are all the facts that there are, but then concede that those facts are not sufficient to determine that a material representation has one meaning rather than another, then you have to judge that there just is no fact of the matter about whether a material representation has that one meaning rather than another. For example, you have to judge there's no objective fact of the matter about whether we really carry out addition rather than quaddition. Of course, we take ourselves to be doing addition, and it would be bizarre to try to interpret ourselves as doing anything else. But for materialists like the ones that I'm describing, people like Quine, that is merely a pragmatic choice on our part. It doesn't reflect anything about the objective physical facts themselves. But this brings us to premise one of Ross's syllogism. Ross holds that all of our thoughts do in fact have some determinate or unambiguous conceptual content. But the clearest examples involve formal thinking, so he focuses on those, and I'll follow him in that. Formal thinking is the kind familiar from mathematics and formal logic. Adding and subtracting, squaring a number, reasoning through an AA one-form categorical syllogism, or applying inference rules like modus ponens and modus tollens would be examples. Now, to claim, as some materialists do, that there is no objective fact of the matter about what any of our thoughts or utterances mean entails that there is no objective fact of the matter about whether we ever really are adding, squaring, applying modus ponens, and so on. But that, Ross argues, cannot possibly be right, and there are four reasons why. First, it is from a, from a phenomenological point of view, bizarre to suppose that there is no fact of the matter about whether any of us is, for example, really adding right now. So compute 10 plus 10 in your mind. Is it remotely plausible to say that there is no objective right answer to the question whether you were just now carrying out addition rather than quaddition? Suppose we were to allow for the sake of argument that this is possible, at least in principle, that there be no fact of the matter. Why should we have more confidence in the theory that leads us to such a bizarre result than we have in the phenomenological evidence that we really are adding? Moreover, if the phenomenology could be wrong about something like this, how can we be confident that it is right about anything else? For example, if we are getting it wrong when making judgments about the conceptual content of our very thoughts, how do we know we aren't also getting it wrong when making judgments about the conceptual content of our perceptual experiences? And in that case, what happens to the observational and experimental evidence upon which physical science rests? For example, if a scientist takes himself to be having a perceptual experience of seeing that the needle on a dial is pointing to a certain number, how could he be sure that he isn't really having an experience of some very different sort? A second problem is that it's hard to see how the thesis that there's no objective fact of the matter about the content of our formal thought processes can be squared with the existence of the vast body of knowledge that comprises the disciplines of mathematics and formal logic. Nor is it just that mathematics and logic constitute genuine bodies of knowledge in their own right. 
They are also presupposed by the natural sciences. So once again, to deny that any of our thoughts or utterances has any unambiguous or determinate content seems to undermine the very possibility of natural science. A third and related problem is that if we, if we never really ever apply modus ponens, modus tollens, or any other form of logical inference, then it would follow that none of the arguments that we ever give is ever really valid. But this would include the arguments of materialist philosophers like Quine and Dennett, who deny that our thoughts and utterances ever really do have any exact or determinate conceptual content. Hence, their view is self-defeating. Even if it were true, we could never be rationally justified in believing that it's true, because we could never be rationally justified in believing anything. Fourth, the claim that we never really add or square a number or apply modus ponens or the like is self-defeating in an even more direct and fatal way. For coherently to deny that we ever really do these things presupposes that we at least have a grasp of what it would be to do them. And that means having thoughts with conceptual content as unambiguous as those which materials like Quine and, and Dennett say that we do not have. In particular, to deny that we ever really add requires that we unambiguously grasp what it is to add and then go on to deny that we ever really do that. To deny that we ever really apply an inference rule like modus ponens requires that we first unambiguously grasp what it is to reason via modus ponens and then go on to deny that we ever really do that, and so on. Yet the whole point of denying that we ever really add or apply modus ponens, etc., was to avoid having to admit that we at least sometimes have thought processes with an unambiguous or exact conceptual content. So to deny that we have them really presupposes that we have them. It simply cannot coherently be done. And so we have Ross's argument. Again, premise one tells us that formal thought processes can have an exact or unambiguous conceptual content, as is evidenced by the fact that, as we've just seen, even the act of denying that they have such a content commits us implicitly to affirming they do have it. Premise two tells us that nothing material can have an exact or unambiguous conceptual content, as even materialists like Quine and Dennett acknowledge on the basis of arguments like Kripke's. From these premises, we get our conclusion, namely that formal thought processes are not material. Let's now consider some objections. A charge commonly made by materialists is that to affirm the immateriality of the mind is to be committed to the existence of a spooky kind of mind stuff or ectoplasm. Developing this accusation, the materialist may then ask why representations made out of ectoplasm or mind stuff would be any more capable of having an exact or unambiguous conceptual content than material representations are. The idea is that the indeterminacy of meaning would afflict material and immaterial stuff alike so that it gives us no reason to affirm the immateriality of the mind. Now, common though this sort of objection is, it's aimed at a straw man. You won't find Plato or Aristotle or Aquinas or Descartes or any of the other major uh, defenders of the immateriality of the mind asserting the existence of anything like ectoplasm or mind stuff. For one thing, they don't think of the mind as composed of stuff of any kind, precisely because they don't think of it as composed at all, but rather as simple or non-composite. Ectoplasm is also supposed to be a kind of gauzy substance that emanates from a medium during a seance, or is visible under certain conditions, and so on. In other words, it is not really immaterial at all, but just an exotic kind of matter. Obviously, then, it is the last thing that defenders of the immateriality of thought would associate with the mind. More to the present point, the materialist objection under consideration presupposes that the defender of the mind's immateriality is positing two things, namely an immaterial thought on the one hand, and the conceptual content of that thought on the other hand. And just as with a material representation, we can ask which of various possible conceptual contents it has, so too, according to the objection in question, we can ask of an immaterial thought which of various possible conceptual contents it has. Indeterminacy of meaning, the objection holds, will follow in both cases. But this simply misunderstands the nature of the view that the mind is immaterial. For in fact, the view denies that there is a distinction to be drawn between an immaterial thought and its conceptual content. 
There's just the one thing, not two things, that might come apart the way that a material representation and its conceptual content could come apart. Scholastic philosophers sometimes make the point by drawing a distinction between material or instrumental signs and formal signs. A material sign is double-natured. That is to say, it is both a sign and also something else, namely an entity in its own right. The smoke that we take to be a sign of fire, the red and white striped pole that functions as, as the sign of a barbershop, uh, and written and spoken words are all material signs in that they can be characterized entirely apart from their status as signs in terms of their chemical composition, say, or their texture or shape. By contrast, formal signs, as Francis Parker and Henry Veach point out, quote, do not have traits which must be known before their significance is known. They are not means, things which have meaning. They are themselves meanings. They are signs and nothing but signs. They have no nature other than their signifying nature. It's from their book, Logic as a, a Human Instrument. So examples would be concepts and propositions. Neither a concept nor a proposition has any nature other than being about whatever it is about. It makes sense to suppose that a material sign might not have been about anything, but it makes no sense to suppose that a concept or proposition might not have been about anything. These are signs that are nothing but signs. If there were still really any doubt about whether there are such things as formal signs, there's a fairly intuitive argument for their existence, which is suggested by Parker and Veach in the book from their, of theirs that I just quoted from. Precisely because material signs and their contents are separable, we cannot read off the content from the nature that they have apart from their status as signs. We have to determine their meaning by reference to other signs. As we do, we check a dictionary to see how one word is defined by reference to other words. But if every sign were a material sign, we would be led to a vicious regress. Hence, there must be signs which just are their meanings and which therefore need not be known by reference to other signs and can serve as the terminus of explanation of those signs that do need to be explained by reference to others. A second possible objection to the argument for the immateriality of the mind that I've been defending here might be to appeal to the existence of computers as a counterexample to what I've been claiming. For computers, the critic might say, have an unambiguous or exact conceptual content, even though they are purely material. For example, when you use an ordinary pocket calculator, you are surely doing addition and not quadition. Perhaps it is obvious what is wrong with this objection, which is that Kripke's quadition example, in fact, does apply to computers no less than it does to human neurophysiology and behavior, as Kripke himself pointed out. For there are no physical features of computer that can by themselves determine whether it is carrying out uh, addition or quadition, no matter how far we extend its outputs. No matter what the past behavior of a machine has been, we can always suppose that its next output, five, say, when calculating numbers larger than any that it has calculated before, might show that it is carrying out something like quadition rather than addition. Of course, it might be said in response that if this happens, that would just show that the machine was malfunctioning rather than performing quadition. But Kripke points out that whether some output counts as a malfunction itself depends on what program the machine is running. And whether the machine is running the program for addition rather than quadition is precisely what is in question. Another way to put the point is that the question of what, a prog what program a machine is running always involves idealization. In any actual machine, gears get stuck, components melt, and in myriad other ways, the machine fails perfectly to instantiate the program that we say is running. There's nothing in the physical features or operations of the machine themselves that can tell us that it has failed perfectly to instantiate its idealized program. For relative to an eccentric program, even a machine with a stuck gear or melted component could be doing exactly what it is supposed to be doing. And a gear that doesn't stick or a component that doesn't melt could count as malfunctioning. Hence, there is nothing in the behavior of a computer considered by itself that can tell us whether it's giving 125 in response to the question, what is 68 plus 57, counts as an instance of its following an idealized program for addition or instead as a malfunction in a machine that is supposed to be carrying out an idealized program for quadition. And there is nothing in the behavior of a computer considered by itself 
that could tell us whether giving five, the number five, in response to the question, what is 68 plus 57, counts as a malfunction in a machine that is supposed to be carrying out an idealized program for addition, or instead as an instance of, a, of properly following an idealized program for quaddition. Of course, we could always ask the programmer of the machine whether it is addition or quaddition that he had in mind. But that simply reinforces the point that there is nothing in the physical properties of the machine itself that can tell us. The reason we can say with confidence that a computer really is carrying out addition rather than quaddition is that people program machines to carry out addition, and they don't program, the program them to carry out quaddition. But then, strictly speaking, the exact or unambiguous content is in the minds of these programmers and not in the machines themselves. And these human minds, as I've been arguing, are immaterial. Hence, it either misses the point or begs the question to appeal to computers as if they show that there could be exact or unambiguous conceptual content in the absence of something immaterial. This also shows why it is a mistake to think that rationality can be explained in materialist terms by thinking of the mind as software running on the hardware of the brain. Addition is a rational thought process. So if rationality in general can be explained in terms of the computer model of the mind, then addition in particular should be explicable in those terms. But we've seen why it cannot be explained in those terms. Again, no collection of purely material facts can by themselves determine that you are carrying out addition rather than quaddition, and therefore no collection of purely material facts about the brain can determine that it is running a program for addition rather than a program for quaddition. So since you are in fact carrying out addition rather than quaddition, there must be more going on with this rational thought process than merely the running of a program. The same thing is true for all other rational thought processes because a parallel quaddition style argument could be run for any of them. Nor will it do to suggest that natural selection has determined that the brain is following one program rather than another. For any program we conjecture natural selection has put into us, there's going to be an alternative program with equal survival value. And the biological facts will be insufficient to determine which of them is the one that we are actually following. For example, suppose it is suggested that the capacity for addition has survival value and thus would have been favored by natural selection. In that case, it might be thought, we have good reason to think that the brain is running the program for addition. The problem is that we could also postulate instead that the brain is running a program for something like quaddition, because there is always going to be a form uh, of quaddition that will yield exactly the same results as addition in all cases where survival depends upon it. So there is no argument from natural selection for the conclusion that the brain is running a program for addition there wouldn't be an equally good argument for the conclusion that the brain is running a program for quaddition. Hence, the appeal to natural selection fails to salvage the view that rationality can be explained in terms of the computer model of the mind. Now, there are other powerful objections to the computer model of the mind, though as with the anti-materialist argument, uh, arguments from consciousness and intentionality, one of the objections that I think is especially powerful has force only insofar as it turns the materialist's own mathematicized conception of matter against him. What I have in mind is an objection developed by John Searle, though what I'm going to describe is not Searle's famous Chinese room argument, but rather a different and, in my view, deeper argument that he developed in later work. As Searle points out, a scientific account of the mind would have to appeal to observer-independent features of the material world. For the existence of the observer is precisely what such an account is supposed to be explaining. If it explained the existence of the mind, and thus of the observer, in terms of observer-relative features, it would be viciously circular. It would be explaining the existence of the observer in terms of observer-relative features, and the existence of the observer-relative features in terms of the existence of the observer. Now, the trouble with the computer model of the mind, Searle argues, is that the key features to which it appeals are observer-relative. A computer processes representations or symbols, for example, the ones and zeros of binary code, by implementing an algorithm. But nothing counts as, an, as the implementation of an algorithm, or as a one, or as a zero, or any other representation, apart from an observer who assigns this interpretation to the relevant physical processes. 
For example, what a calculator does counts as arithmetic only because it had designers who intended that its processes be taken as arithmetical calculations. So it makes no sense to try to explain the existence of the mind in terms of the notion of a computer because something counts as a computer only relative to a mind. The computer model of the mind thus puts the cart before the horse. Now, it seems to me that Cyril's argument is unanswerable, given that the materialist presupposes what I referred to earlier as a mathematicized conception of matter. The reason is that the key computational notions presuppose intentionality or directedness toward an object. For any representation or symbol, even one as rudimentary as a string of ones or zeros, is a representation only insofar as it is directed toward or pointed at some object of representation. And the trouble with this, as I noted earlier, is that a purely mathematicized conception of matter strips from matter anything that smacks of Aristotelian final causality or teleology. There can be nothing like directedness toward an object on a mathematicized conception of matter and thus, given that conception of matter, nothing like the representations or symbols, nothing like the representations or symbols can exist in matter except in an observer-relative way. The sorts of representations that, would, uh, that a computer would be processing could not exist in matter given that conception of matter. Now, that does not by itself suffice to prove that there is, in fact, nothing like algorithms or computation in the natural world. Because as I've said before, one could instead argue that the mathematicized conception of matter is incomplete and take the neo-Aristotelian position that there really are teleological features uh, built into nature after all. On this interpretation, when contemporary biologists and physicists make use of notions like information processing, algorithms and the like in, discussing, uh, in describing natural processes, they are inadvertently rediscovering something like Aristotelian teleology. Now, I am myself very sympathetic with this view, but it is not my purpose at the moment to defend it. The point is just that a reconsideration of Aristotle would provide the materialist with some resources by which he could mount a response to Searle, though I imagine that for any materialist, a return to teleology would be too high a price to pay. In any event, even this move would not save the view that rationality specifically can be explained uh, by thinking of the brain as a kind of computer for the reasons given by Kripke and Ross. Even if we might think of the consciousness and intentionality that we share with the lower animals in computational terms, no material object, not even the brain conceived of as a kind of computer, can have the exact or an ambiguous conceptual content that characterizes the rational thought processes distinctive of human beings. All right, with that I'll end and then we can take some questions.
brutal effect that the economy of faith will be replaced by the economy of fullness of life, end quote. Um, my question, uh, and, and a few others, <laughs> certainly during your talk, how does St. Thomas Aquinas thought can help and reassure us in the certainty of faith? Are we here confronted with the data of pure faith? Uh, or a pure conceptual thought? An appetite for meaning? How can we define immortality? Immateriality? Immateriality? Uh, I'm thinking about uh, the expression of the whole creed. Uh, called the of the so. Okay, so thank you for your thank you for your question. So the question is about the really the Im immortality of the soul and the immortality of the human person, or at least this uh, aspect of the human person that I've been discussing, namely the the intellect, our our intellectual activities. That's that's not something I directly addressed in the in my own talk. But what I did have to say does have implications for that. So um, the sorts of arguments that I, that I was giving in the talk, and of course they're philosophical arguments rather than arguments that appeal to scripture or to, uh, to tradition or the teaching of the church. If the arguments are sound, then they would give us a, a purely philosophical basis for affirming that the highest aspect of human nature, namely the intellect, is, is immaterial and therefore not dependent, or not entirely dependent anyway, on the operations of the body for their for their uh, for their operation, so I do think that the uh, the arguments of the immateriality of the mind uh, they do imply when you add some further premises the immortality of the soul. The basic idea being that if the human person is not entirely is not entirely dependent on the body, even when we're alive, there are things that we do, namely thinking, abstract thought, that don't depend entirely on bodily operations. Then the human person is not entirely dependent on the body so that the death of the body is not the extinction of the person. There is something that carries on beyond the death of the body, namely the, our intellectual faculties. Um, and so we will have established through purely philosophical arguments the, the immortality of the soul. At the same time, given uh, St. Thomas's anthropology, though our intellects are not material and so not entirely dependent on bodily activities, nevertheless, um, we have the lowest kind of intellect that there is lower than, than any uh, possible angelic intellect, for example. And our intellects are so limited that their ordinary mode of operation is to take in information from the body, take in information from the, the sense organs and from uh, brain activity. So that the mind by itself, the intellect by itself, apart from the body, is, is, there's a very, can, can do very little. It's essentially inert, require divine assistance for post-mortem cognition, say. And you know, an example of how tied to the, to the body we are, even though the intellect is not itself material, is indeed immaterial, it nevertheless depends on the brain and uh, mental imagery and other bodily activity for its operation. And an indication of how true this is can be seen if we go back to an, an example like the kind I gave in the talk. So if you, if you imagine um, a thought, like the thought that two and two make four, or the thought that the cat is on the mat, or what have you. As I've argued, that thought cannot be identified with anything material. It can't be identified with, with a, the English or Italian sentence written out on the board, say. It can't be identified with brain activity. But if you try to, if you try to, um, to think a thought like that, the thought that two and two make four, or that the cat is on the mat, or what have you, but without thinking, without using any sentence, a sentence in English, a sentence in Italian, a sentence in any other language, you try to entertain that sentence mentally without doing it in any particular language, you find you can't do it. That shows how even though the human mind is, is immaterial, it's nevertheless very tightly tied to brain activity and to mental imagery for its ordinary operation. So we have, I think, as a result of a complete philosophical account of the human intellect, both the conclusion that human beings are not entirely material, Therefore, the destruction of the body cannot be the destruction of the human being. There must be something that carries on beyond death. But at the same time, that for human cognition to operate in a robust way, uh, we need the assistance of the body and of the brain. And this points to the need for a resurrection of the body. So that the afterlife, as, philo as philosophy can reveal to us, is, is very thin indeed. It tells us very little beyond that 
the fact that, that the, the death of the body is not the extinction of the person. But for a more robust conception of what an afterlife would be like, we'd have to appeal to divine revelation. So that's how I would tie these together in a, in a more full presentation. My question is, on this model you presented, do computer programs have unambiguous conceptual content, or do they only have them kind of derived in a derived way that we would have to ask the programmer to get what the unambiguous content is? And how does that interact with self-learning programs, like um, image recognition software, where you don't really have a single programmer who programs the algorithm? a program that uh, puts in, generates a whole different bunch of algorithms and they are self-selected based on their success performing a certain task. But there is no human programmer. You could ask, well, what is the unambiguous content of this program that's running? Well, if, if the program, say it's a program, you, you, you mentioned like a pattern recognition program. If it's a program for recognizing uh, faces, for example, a program that might be used in you know, a security device to only let certain people in the building or what have you. The fact that what it's doing is representing faces in the first place, the fact that we, that its outputs count as the recognition of a face, I mean, that's clearly an observer relative fact about it. Now, there might be certain objective features of the hardware that put, that put limits on what can be done with it or that, um, that entail features that, you know, once you, once you construct the device and get it going, that the programmer couldn't predict everything that would follow from it. But the unpredictability of its operation doesn't entail that there's content there objectively that's entirely independent of, of the programmer. I mean, the basic, the, the basic facts about it, that it is a facial pattern recognition device, for example, I would say that's, that's observer relative. Um, if, if somehow you, you'd had such a device cobbled together just through accidental means, you know, the, the stereotypical wind passing through the junkyard and assembling this device, there, I would say there'd be no fact of the matter that, that what it's doing is recognizing patterns, facial patterns or any other patterns. That it, that it has that function at all is observer relative. And the fact that there are features of the system that even the programmer couldn't predict, I don't think is in conflict with that. I fear we have to end here so we can take a, a sufficient break before the next talk. Uh, I just would say the paradox of Phaser is he gives you these overwhelming, logically coherent arguments for the immateriality of intellect, but he does so with such geometric power, you wonder if he's a supercomputer. So, um, um, Only relative to certain observers. <laughs> so please help me thank Professor Phaser.